Hello, everybody. How are you doing? You know, last words are important. I remember when my father was on his deathbed. Um, I literally can rehearse, and this is 10 or so years ago. I can literally remember almost every last word my father said to me, my last visit with him before he passed away. And when Christ was on the cross, we're looking at his last words, and he utters these very first words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing which sets such a tone for everything that would follow. And you have to remember when Christ uttered this, that he had been brutally beaten, tortured, humiliated, so many things happening unto him all at one time, let alone the wrath of God pouring upon him. The soldiers were down at the foot of the cross gambling for his garments. There was cussing and swearing going on. He was publicly humiliated. And in the middle of that, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, the soldiers knew about how to crucify people. They understood that. That wasn't a problem. They did that every day. But they didn't realize that this was the Son of God that they were crucifying. They didn't realize that this was the Lord of glory that they were putting to death. But Jesus gives us such an example of forgiveness that this is what he wants us to be like. This is the direction he wants our lives to go. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about forgiveness, and that is that it is first and foremost, you bestow it upon those who are undeserving of it. Not one soldier that crucified Jesus asked him to be forgiven. Nobody did at the time. And yet we find Jesus, because of his gracious loving heart says, Father, forgive them. And so forgiveness for all of us, we need to bestow it upon people that don't ask for it and maybe don't deserve it. Because the truth is, none of us deserve God's forgiveness, but yet he gives it freely, doesn't he? And so we soak that in and we revel in that. But I want to tell you a story of a man who learned forgiveness at a very early age. This man's name is Chris Carrier, and he lives in Florida. And when he was 10 years old, he was abducted. His kidnapper, angry with the boy's family, burned him with cigarettes, stabbed him numerous times with an ice pick, and then shot him in the head and left him for dead in the Everglades of Florida. Remarkably, the boy survived, although he lost sight in one eye. No one was ever arrested. And then one day a phone call came. This was 20 years later. A man had confessed to the crime. Now, by this time, Chris Carrier, the young boy who was abducted and abused, he was a minister, a youth minister, and he decided it was time for him to go see the man that had done this to him over 20 years ago. He found David McAllister, the 77-year-old ex-convict, frail, blind, living in a North Miami Beach nursing home, and Chris Carrier began visiting him regularly, reading to McAllister from the Bible and praying with him. This ministry opened up the door for McAllister, this man, to become a Christian. Now, many people would say to Chris, why could you do this? How could you possibly forgive that monster, what he did to you when you were 10 years old? I'll never forget what Chris had to say. He said this, from my point of view, I don't see how I could not forgive him. If I'd chosen to hate him all these years or spent my life looking for revenge, then I wouldn't be the man that I am today, the man that my wife and my children love. 
and the man that God has helped me to be. You see, we're to forgive others even as God has forgiven us. This is the example Jesus gives us on the cross. Any sin that we commit against, any sin that we, God forgives us or we forgive other people, it's a small sin compared to what God has actually forgiven us. Our sins to God are large. They're big. And it took a divine being like Christ to pay the price for that. But he's our role model. Jesus is our role model. It says in Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God has forgiven you. Isn't that a beautiful example? And I want to tell you why. Do you meet people in life that are just, you meet them and you know they're upset, they're angry, they're not happy people? I've discovered over the years that many times it's because they have what the book of Hebrews calls a root of bitterness in them. Something's happened to them, like the story that I read you about Chris. Chris could have his whole life been bitter and angry. Why God? Why'd you let this happen to me? Instead, he chose the path of forgiveness his entire life. And what a benefit did that reap? You know, when we let bitterness creep down inside of us there, it gets a root. It gets a hold. And you know, Christ's example for us on this is one of freedom. And I ask you today, do you want to be free? Do you want to live like Christ did? Do you want love to come out of your life, compassion to come out of your life? I would recommend to you forgiveness as a model, forgiveness as a way of life. I'll bet in this room today there are people that have a grudge against somebody that something that happened years and years ago. I would say by the grace of God given unto me today, God wants you to let that go. God wants you to forgive that person. And by God's grace, you can do that and you can be transformed into the image of the very Jesus who died for you. Amen? Amen. Luke 23, verse 39 to 43 says, One of the criminals who hung here hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man was, he did nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. When you think of paradise, you think of beautiful things. You think of people serving you. You think of, I don't know, for me, I think of the ocean, I think of the beaches, I think of the palm branches, I think of coconuts or whatever, and we're on a beach, and it's a beautiful thing, and I had an opportunity uh, to officiate a wedding in a beautiful place, and I go there, and I talk with my family, we're planning this for a long time, and we finally go, and it's officially, the wedding was beautiful, it's over, but now vacation has begun, and now... That next morning, we get something, a notification on this thing that sometimes rules our lives, and it says, uh, ballistic missile threat inbound to the state of Hawaii. Take uh, shelter immediately. This is not a drill. And I remember waking up to a commotion of 
my family, my mom, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and my two little people under two, and my wife, and I wake up like, what's going on? I'm walking my little Maddox down the stairs, and everyone's freaking out. Everyone kind of turns to me and says, what do we do? And I say, well, it's today. Does anyone need to confess? <laughs> you know? And it wasn't that at all. It was not that at all. And immediately right after this, Sarah, my lovely wife, says, you need to pray right now. And we gather together as crazy jets are flying above our house, people, alarms are going off, all these crazy things are happening, and we're praying. And after a long 38 minutes, we get another notification that says, false alarm. And then after that, it's like, well, let's go to the beach, let's go. Um, <laughs> but for us, we sometimes forget this paradise. What is this paradise? And maybe you guys have been in a situation where someone said to you, you have cancer and you have three months to live, or maybe or a car accident, free car accident just happened, like we just heard this morning. And the biggest thing is that Jesus says here that I see is it's never too late. And when Jesus sees his self on the cross, he knew from the beginning that he created everything. Remember, this guy's the creator of the universe. He's our God. But for some reason, even though we messed up this perfect place that he created, and we brought this thing called sin into the world, our creator, our God, our Jesus says, I want to show them the way and the truth and the life. And I will come become a human. And I want to show them the ways of what it means to forgive, like Pastor Kevin said. What it means to live for me. What it means to live in paradise in this dark world. And as, you know, there's lots of temptations where he said to Satan himself, Matthew 4, hey, you could jump off this building and have your angels save you. It could be over, Jesus. And he said, no, there's something bigger. And in the midst of his being arrested, Jesus takes, is, is willingly going before him and his own disciples are taking out swords and chopping off an ear, right? And he goes, do you realize it's not too late? It's not too late I'm saving this person. I'm going to save this person. I'm going to save you, Peter. I'm going to save everyone because it's not too late for them. And sometimes for us, we just put up a wall and it's over. And we say, you know what? It is too late for them. Why am I wasting my time? Why am I going to pray for this person? Why am I going to live for this person? Why even hang out with them? I'm doing good. I'm going to church. I'm doing my thing. I'm serving. I'm giving. I'm doing all these things. But Jesus says to us, it's not too late. But there is only so much time. And as he's sitting next to this criminal, he's saying a lot what we say. Where are you, God? Just save us already. You're God. But there was no faith there. But Jesus wants to show us this beautiful thing called grace. Where even though we sin, he comes to save us. And this criminal right next to him said, he doesn't deserve this. We deserve this. And he saw this beautiful thing of grace, and he called out to Jesus. And he sees Jesus for who he is, and he says, will you remember me? The question for us is, what would he say to you? It's never too late to call on his name, but there is only so much time. And Jesus is always there. He's with us in everything that we face, all the corruption, all the sin, all the death, all the happiness too. But what would he say? 
truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. What a great song for uh, introducing the third word. How deep the Father's love is for all of us. And uh, Kevin talked about the, the deep love that uh, Jesus had when he forgave the, the, his enemies. And then Austin talked about the, the thief on the cross next to him, who was given the opportunity to go to heaven. He hadn't lived a life worthy of that, but he was going to go to be with Jesus. That's how deep God's love is for all of us. The third word is about his love for his mother and his best friend, John. The 19th chapter of, of John, verses 19 through 27, says this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Well, being a school person all my life, uh, I want to speak about the three R's. Uh, recognition, remembrance, and responsibility. To me, it is so fitting that Jesus would look down from that cross and see his mom and see his best friend. As Kevin mentioned, there's all kinds of clatter and commotion going on. There, there are the enemies, there are the soldiers, there are those uh, mockers, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law standing by and all this commotion is going on but he looks down and he sees his mom and he addresses her doesn't that just touch you and he's up on that cross the most painful position you could possibly imagine with those nails through his wrists you know uh actually for that point I was going to show you a nail I went and bought a nail for $1.75 that was like this long. I wanted to show how gross it was. But the more I carried that nail around with me, the worse it got. I couldn't handle it. So I left it in the car. So if you want to see the nail later, it's in my car. In 1993, I was part of a, um, a group that went to Russia. I, we trained teachers in Russia. We gave them the Jesus movie for every classroom. We worked with administrators, and we went into one classroom where a third grade teacher was shown a picture. It's actually a still picture from the Jesus movie, and it showed the, the um, spikes through Jesus' wrists like this and showed him on the cross. And she had never seen that picture before. And this is the honest truth. Her class is with her right there, and they're showing her this picture. And she physically started to get sick. She couldn't handle it. And tears just flowed, and she ran out of the classroom. And she stood there against the, the, the hallway of the classroom, just wailing because she had seen that picture of what Jesus had done for all of us. 
Later that, that evening, um, a team that was working with the, the younger grades, the third grade, led her to Jesus Christ because she had seen what Jesus had done for us. That is what Mary saw of her son when he was up on that cross. She saw what he was going through. It must have really hurt. But Jesus recognized the need. Now listen to this. This is what I want you to catch. He recognized the need for comfort and care for his mother while he was still on the cross. Can you imagine that? All the energy, the hurt that he, was, that he could possibly focus or the energy he could focus went on his mother instead of on himself. Secondly, from recognition, I thought about remembrance. Just think of what Mary sees when she looks at her, her son. In her mind, she sees the dedication service when she took little Jesus along with Joseph and they went to the temple. And you remember there was Simeon there who would not die until he had seen the Messiah. He was waiting. He looked down and he dedicated Jesus and he said this, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What a thing to say at a dedication of a baby. But the hurt that Jesus would have up there on that cross, Mary would also experience as she looked at her son. We all hurt when our children hurt. We all kind of bleed with them when they bleed. We all kind of cry with them when they cry. I remember when my daughter Bonnie had completed her, her thir- first year at Simpson College. She came home after a missions trip, came home here, was at a softball game on a Sunday afternoon right here at our church. It was out of the local park. And a, a ball got away. She had beat the ball out or beat the ball out and went to first base. And they... The guy fired the ball, and it hit her in the jaw, yeah, and broke her jaw. And we weren't home. We had gotten home, and there was a note on our front door saying, go to the hospital. We got to the hospital, and they had called in a special surgeon. The surgeon started working on Bonnie. I can remember that, just hurting for my daughter. And seeing the blood, our car was all full of blood. Her friend had driven her to the, to the hospital. It was blood all over the place. And I remember just seeing Bonnie. And they, they had to go in and clamp her. You know how they do that? They wire the jaw together. They had to put it together, put a plate. She still has that plate in there, by the way. That was like 20 years ago. And they, they clamped her, her jaw together. And I remember this, watching them bring her out of the operating room and bring her to a a room where she was to stay for a a little while. And all of a sudden, with her jaw clamped, she got sick. Yes. And they couldn't find the pliers to cut those wires. And we're watching our daughter suffer, thinking, oh, man, I cried more than she did, obviously. I hurt. That's what Mary was going through. 
There were many other things to remember as Mary looked at her son. She must have remembered when she had uh, taken him and the whole family had gone to Jerusalem and then, then he stayed back to talk to the, to the teachers of the law. Remember that? And they finally missed him and they went back and, and they said, Mary said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? Or maybe um, she, she remembered the time when she went to release, release Jesus and get him out of a place where he was speaking. And someone came to Jesus and said, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. See, she must have remembered that. Then she remembered all the scoffing and the teaching and the miracles and all those things. John must have remembered the competition with his brother James. And he must have remembered when he asked Jesus if he and his brother James could sit at the right and the left of, of Jesus in the kingdom. But all the remembrance brought about consideration of all that Jesus had done for each of them while he taught here on earth, while he cared for them, and what he was going to do for them in paradise. Finally, the third R is responsibility. You know, the, the Jews thought a great deal of children. The family was a divine institution. And they knew to train up a child the way he should go. When he was old, he would not depart from it. Jesus had said himself, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Then he said, if anyone offends one of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a millstone hanged around his neck and drowned in the sea. Jesus loved little children. But also, Jesus taught, and it was taught, throughout the, the Jewish community that you should really love those who were your parents, the elders. You should love the elders. Hello. Okay. It was said, it was said, honor your father and your mother. Do you remember how Jesus blasted those Pharisees when they tried to modify the law a little bit by saying it was okay to give money to the temple and not to your parents. But Jesus knew he had a responsibility to his mother and to his best friend to put them together. This is such a, a revolutionary concept because it was not the brothers, they were long gone. It was not Jesus' brothers who would come and take care of Mary. It was, it was John, a best friend, who was like a brother to Jesus because Mary and John were close because of their belief in Jesus. Don't you love that? See, it wasn't the, the physical that put them together. It was their love for Jesus that put them together. And Jesus knew that when he said, John, you're going to take care of my mom. Do you notice 
Do you notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about paradise or, or the world to come or anything like that? He focuses Mary on what's going to happen now with you. Someone's going to take care of you. And just as Jesus wants us to remember that we need to love others, he said to John, love my mother in my stead. I'm going to be gone. I've started the process. I've loved her. I've cared for her. I've done all this. Now you continue that. And that's what Jesus says to us. And there, there's, as I conclude this, I want to get this verse across. There's one interesting verse I found in Acts 1.14. After Pentecost... And all that they had gone through, Mary and John, and all Mary had done, it says this. All the believers, it says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and what? His brothers. See, they came back. Because of the love that Jesus had for Mary, the fact that Mary was being taken care of by John, the brothers came back and they were all together in prayer. Isn't that great? Now, here's the point. Jesus wants us to take that same attitude toward those around us. See, you never miss out. When you take the love of Jesus and you pass it on to somebody else. Jesus loves us just as he loved John. And then he said to John, take that love to Mary. And that's what Jesus says to us. Take that love to the world out there. Amen. I came to faith about 32 years ago. And I didn't understand from the beginning why it's called Good Friday. I've been studying the Bible and teaching it almost about 20 years, and I still don't understand why it's called Good Friday. Let me explain. It was the darkest hour, the darkest hour of the entire scandal. The events got triggered with a betrayal and a very intimate meal with dear friends when one of his friends literally sold him out, identified him with a kiss. That scandal progressed to an illegal trial, illegal hour, illegal time, illegal day, illegal crowd, illegal judge, corruption politically and religiously at the highest level. And Jesus didn't say a word. That illegal trial resulted in a conviction resulting in a butcher, brutal torture session in a torture chamber by Romans who were trained and professional executors. Stripped of his clothes, his beard, his dignity, his shame. Stripped of his manhood, stripped of his skin. Beaten to a bloody pulp, says historians. Isaiah describes him as unrecognizable. And then Jesus has to drag his instrument of execution through a city days ago he wept for. With crowds who cheered him on a few days ago, now mocking him, laughing, and celebrating his imminent demise, his failure at what he came to do. Stumbling, working his way to a place called the Skull, a site of execution at the base of a hill, he was then pinned to that cross, a Roman execution pole, still to this day one of the most brutal 
means of execution known to humankind, designed to murder, to take up to three days to do so every moment, excruciating torture and pain until the last breath, and very public. The Roman cross was five and a half feet high at its highest level, face high, literally murder in your face. And then the darkest hour ensued. At noon, God caused the sun to shut. Darkness crept over the land. Chaos ensued. It was described by Josephus as a thick, dank, death fog. Egypt dark. When the Hebrews were getting ready to be released, you could feel death in the air. Stars were out. Sun was out. I believe the Roman torches were blown out originally and chaos ensued. Complete darkness. Can't see the hand in front of your face. And it was there, three hours into that, he had his darkest moment when he shared these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? rejected me, left me. I can't imagine what those words meant to his mother, to his friends, to those still there face to face and now leaning in because they can't even see Jesus to hear the words of, where are you, God? This Jesus is the same Jesus since day one that said, I am in the Father and the Father is me. The two of us are ichad, one. I can't do anything without the Father showing me what to do. He and I are at work on this planet together. I'm going to go home, build a house, come back, and my Father and I will abide, dwell in you, and you will be in our oneness. And now, these words of betrayal, of uh, complete distance, for the first time in the history of time, Jesus was separated from the Father. What did that do to the crowd? I know what it does to me because I have a lot of issues. Those who know me best can say amen. And my biggest and my worst issue is the fear of abandonment. It breaks my heart when I am rejected. It's my biggest drumbeat of flesh, and I am not proud of it. I woke up this morning, and I said, I hope that everybody in the auditorium likes what I have to share, Lord. <laughs> I'm not proud of it. But his darkest hour became his darkest moment, and I think it became his greatest moment when he said those words. My God, my God. When he started his ministry, he started by a baptism, and then he sat with darkness for 40 days. You see, in Scripture, darkness means the absence of God. Genesis 1, one of the first things God does when he shows up on the scene is bring light to darkness. Darkness denotes the absence of God. Jesus is baptized, sits with Satan himself, and then fulfills a prophecy when he moves to Capernaum, and the prophecy says, in the land of Zebulun, in the region of Naphtali, by the sea, the people sat in darkness. And the shadow of death cast a shadow. But a great light had shone, and this great light was now pinned to a Roman cross, and the end seemed eminent defeat. But then his best moment, I think, of the entire scandal 
is found in those words. My God, my God. God had literally turned his back on his son. The wrath of God was being poured out on humanity for our sins, our shame, my fear of abandonment, part of my sin life, part of my flesh. And Jesus didn't turn his back on the creator, on his father. He said, my God, my God. Not, no God, no God. Not, what is going on? He said, my God, my God. And then he teaches us to ask tough questions in the middle of dark moments. Why? Not, how could you? How dare you? Not, where are you? And that, my friends, is why I don't understand why it's called Good Friday. Because I believe when Jesus ultimately died, resurrected, and went back to the Father, God said, let me answer that question. Because you are alone, Mark Campbell will never be abandoned. The Corbus family will not walk this valley alone because you are alone, son. Welcome home. That, my friend, is not good news. It's great news, and that's why today is Great Friday. Are you with me? We get to say, my God, my God, thank you for the season of darkness we're in because I know you will never abandon me because 2,000 years ago on that Roman cross, you abandoned my Savior, your Son, my King. Amen. Later, knowing that all was now completed so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. There's a beautiful irony in what Jesus says here. The irony is that Jesus had claimed to be the source of living water. Water that would forever satisfy, water that would well up into eternal life. Yet in the hour of his passion, Jesus is standing there. Jesus is hanging there on the cross, and he's thirsty. Jesus has said to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He made another claim, standing in the middle of the temple, in the festival that would be celebrating when Moses brought the Israelites water in the wilderness. During that celebration, Jesus stood in the middle of the temple and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The one who made these claims about water, about life, about satisfaction, is now hanging naked, beaten, and defeated on the cross. He's thirsty. So much for living water that can never satisfy. So much for water that wells up to eternal life. So much for your ability to save. Or at least that's what we might think if that were the end of the story. But there's a beauty in this irony. What we know as we celebrate this terrible day, what we know as we celebrate Good Friday or Great Friday, what we know is that Jesus was thirsty so that we could be satisfied. 
Jesus was betrayed so that we could be set free. Jesus was condemned so that we could be justified. When the chief priests and the scribes mocked and said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. What they did not realize was that it was not a problem of ability. It was Jesus' will. He chose to suffer and die so that he could bring salvation to all who believed in him. Jesus did not come down off of the cross. He endured the cross. He despised the shame so that he could sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, having beaten death, having defeated sin, and having brought salvation to God's people. He thirsts so that we can be satisfied. In John's gospel, during Jesus' ministry, he makes these promises about living water. And on the cross, Jesus thirsts so that he can make good on his promise. In John's last letter, the book of Revelation, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Jesus says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the water of life without payment. He's able to offer it without payment because he was thirsty for us. We are invited to benefit from Jesus' thirst and find satisfaction for our souls. The spirit and the bride, Revelation says, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Are you thirsty today? Are you thirsty for peace in your soul? Are you thirsty for the joy that seems to be hidden in many places but seems elusive to us? Are you thirsty for love, an enduring love, an unconditional love? Are you thirsty today? Jesus thirsts so that we do not need to. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross with his thirst, we are reminded that there is a fountain that is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. He was thirsty so that we can be satisfied. While Jesus was on the cross, he said these words. John 19.30 When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And a crowd heard this. His loved ones, his family, his mother, his best friend, and even his enemies the Roman guards, the religious leaders, they heard Jesus say, it is finished. And when his friends, they heard these words, they thought, our savior, our friend, he's gone. When his mother heard these three words, she thought, my son, my baby boy, 
my God, he's gone. When the Roman guards heard Jesus say, it is finished, what they thought was that their job had been done, that they had killed this criminal, that the king of the Jews was dead. When the religious leaders, they heard these words, they thought their problems were done. That this so-called savior, that this so-called Messiah, this liar, this fraud, he was dead. When Satan heard these words, it is finished, he laughed. He said to God that you are finished. He said, you are defeating God. He said, you can't even help or save yourself or anyone. But when Jesus said these three simple words, it is finished. What he was saying to that crowd, what he was saying to his family and friends in that moment was that, It's okay, I am with you. What he was saying to his enemies when he said, it is finished, those Roman guards that nailed him to the cross, those Roman guards that torched him, those religious leaders that mocked him, what he was saying to his enemies in that moment, he was saying, I forgive you. What Jesus was saying when he said it was finished to Satan, what he was saying to death, what he was saying to all the wrong in this world, Jesus was saying, you are finished. Pain and death, you are defeated. Satan, you are done. That wrong may exist, but I have won. And for us, Jesus says it is finished. What he's saying to us today is that your wrongs have been made right, that you have been forgiven, that brokenness has been made whole, that hurt has been healed, that justice has overcome injustice, that love, you can love now because you are loved by the Father, and that now you can live in freedom because it is finished. Luke 23. 46. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When I read this passage, I think about a time when I was... um, leaving for Bible college. It was 2015, I was going away to Oral Roberts University. I had been a Christian now for two years and I was so excited to learn 
the scriptures. I was excited to get involved in campus ministry and I was excited to get plugged in the local churches in Tulsa, Oklahoma. At my time there, I felt like I was learning so much about God and that I knew God more than I had known him ever before in my life. But all that kind of got flipped on its head a little bit uh, when I started seeing tragedies happen in the lives of people around me. My second year there, two girls on my sister wing uh, were killed by a drunk driver in a, in a car crash. When I left for college, uh, one of my cousins was brutally murdered by a man that he was trying to help. Four years later, his little brother was murdered. When I was a chaplain at college, there was a guy that lived the floor above me and he was my age and he was on his way to a church service one night and had a massive heart attack and died. He was born with a bad heart. And because I was the chaplain of this dorm, I had to go to the hospital and be there to console his girlfriend and his friends as the doctors roll his dead body past us in the lobby. If I can be honest with you, death is still something to this day that I am not comfortable with. Because with death, there's pain there's loss, there's grief, and there's uncertainty. I've never experienced death for myself, and I know what I believe in my heart, but sometimes what's going on in my head doesn't, doesn't necessarily connect. And some of you in here, you may relate to kind of some of those feelings. And particularly, I know for some people, the holidays are very hard for you because you may have experienced some tragedy and some loss of loved ones. But I find so much comfort and encouragement in knowing that because Jesus suffered for us, he knows the pain we feel. This is what we hold to be true on Good Friday. This is what I hold on to for my life, and this is what I hope you hold on to for yours. At the same time, when we observe Good Friday and we listen to the words of Jesus, we have to remember that Jesus calls us as Christians to follow him with our whole lives. He called his disciples to follow him in the same way, to live the way that he lived. But to follow Jesus with our whole lives, it also means that we got to die. And this death that he's calling us to is not necessarily a physical death, but it's a, more of a spiritual death. In Galatians 2.20, the apostle Paul kind of paints this illustration for us that Christians, that 
to follow Christ, we must spiritually be crucified with him, no longer living for our own plans and for our own intentions, for our own motivations, but letting the life of Christ live through us. But I'm uncomfortable with death. Maybe you are too. Because death is painful. I don't want this to be the analogy that somebody uses for me to be a follower of Christ. Death is uncomfortable, but because Christ suffered for us, he knows the pain we feel. And he suffers with us as we're learning to die to ourselves. So as we continue to learn how to commit our pain, our joy, our plans, our dreams, and our lives into the hands of the Father, let us find hope in knowing that God can do more with our lives than we can do for ourselves. That he has a plan for us that is greater than any plan that we could ever have for our own lives. Amen.